Father, thank you for this day and for this place that you have provided for us, this day of rest and worship and this place where we can gather and encourage one another uh, to greater love for Christ. Uh, Use this uh, Sunday school period to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're continuing in our study of the Confession, chapter 23. It's there on page 933 in your hymnal. And last week sort of was an introduction. We went through section one, but it was an introduction to this whole idea of the relationship of the church and the state uh, and, and how this has evolved over the centuries. And you think, you know, we're moving through Exodus right now. Egypt is specifically associated with the divinity of Pharaoh. Uh, Rome, when it was going through its periods of, of decline or soul-searching, the common strain was we need to get back to the pure Roman worship of the gods. We've left the gods, and that's why uh, Rome is in decline. The, the relationship, and then of course with Christianity, you've got Constantine, the Battle of Milvin Bridge in 314, and he declares Christianity to be the religion of the Roman Empire. Uh, and so there's always been this very close relationship between the church and the state. Uh, and so Westminster is originally operating out of this, out of this uh, paradigm. Now, in the American revision in 1789, they dramatically changed chapter 23 to establish what in the West, or uh, in the American experiment, has been the separation of church and state. Uh, so in the original confession, if someone comes, uh, you know, the, the church is aware that you have uh, committed adultery, then not only is the church to exercise church discipline, but also the civil magistrate is to exercise discipline. Uh, and so church or spiritual Christian offenses become state offenses and vice versa. Uh, state offenses become Christian offenses. And while this is all very neat and tidy in a confession, uh, or, you know, we can put it down on paper and divide it into our neat and tidy categories, in reality, it's much more difficult because clearly your worldview impacts the way that you engage in society. Uh, and to a large degree, sadly, society has a great impact in the church and in our own worldview. And I'll give an example. Uh, we are debating things in the church today that we never would have debated 30 years ago, uh, specifically with relation to gender, with relation to sexual orientation, uh, is pastor who declares himself to be homosexual but celibate. Uh, he's attracted to other men, but he doesn't act on that because the action is where the sin is. Is that acceptable uh, in the Christian church? And this is something that is uh, a big conversation uh, right now in many conservative Christian churches. Uh, it's not 
in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but uh, that doesn't mean that we're immune from this. Well, and that's the debate, yeah. Uh, what, what Ms. Vividelli was saying is that it's, you know, the scripture very clearly says, as a man thinks, he acts. And, and so you can't think of yourself as gay without acting on it. Uh, and, and I would say even, you know, uh, mentally, uh, in, in your imagination. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I think I would, I would, well, I know, I would agree with that position. <laughs> But, but it is, you know, my, my overall point here is, is there is always going to be this tension uh, between church and state, and we're not entirely isolated from it. So last week we looked at a couple of passages. We looked at Romans chapter 13, uh, where we are told to submit to civil authority because God has ordained them. Uh, God has ordained the civil authority. Uh, we looked also at 1 Peter chapter 2, where we're told to honor uh, the emperor. And so so there is clearly, you know, some relationship. There's some way in which our Christian duty, our Christian obedience has some overlap with our civil duty, our civil obedience. And last week I gave an example, and that is uh, when our civil magistrate said that the church could not gather for worship in groups more than 10. Uh, and what do we do with that? Uh, it's not a simple, we're scoff laws, we don't care, you know, I'll do whatever I please. Uh, we're not anarchists. The scripture clearly says we're to obey uh, those that God has placed over us. At the same time, the scripture clearly gives limitations to that when Peter says, uh, it's better for us to obey God rather than man. Uh, and, and so this is a, a, a tricky thing that we've, we're continually trying to, to work through this, this tension between the church and the state. So the original confession is what is known as establishmentarian. Uh, the church establishes the state. And so you think of the Lutheran church uh, in Germany, they were the established German church. And so when you and I write our check to the IRS every year, we, we give our money to the tax man, a portion of that tax revenue goes to pay for the pastors of the established church. Uh, the same thing in England. Uh, the Anglican church is an established church. And so a portion of revenue that is taken up, or at least was, I, I don't know, I've, I've not checked England's tax codes recently, but uh, certainly historically a portion of the tax revenue that's taken up in England goes to pay the salaries of the parish ministers. Um, so the confession is coming out of that, out of that worldview. Uh, Later on, obviously, the 1789, we get a different story, which is uh, dis-establishmentarianism, where the church or the state no longer establishes the church. So 
with that in the background, recognizing that, you know, we're, we're dealing with some tricky wisdom issues here of how to apply scripture to our lives, the confession is really just trying to stick on the basics, uh, of, of what the scripture says. Uh, and so the second section, so we, we covered chapter, section one last time, I'm gonna pick up with section two. It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called themselves in the managing thereof, as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. So, for that end, they may lawfully now, under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasion. So, there is a movement... that arose particularly in the Reformation. Uh, It's got, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. So so you'll find isolated pockets of pacifists uh, throughout church history. But particularly in the Reformation, you've got a significant number of people who, you know, Jesus says to Peter, put away your sword. Uh, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this earth. My armies are angels and... And, you know, if I wanted to call them, I could, they could come and defeat you in an instant, but this is, this is not my kingdom. This is not where I am. You know, my kingdom is not, uh, grounded in political conquest. And so you've got a number of people, the Quakers, the Society of Friends, uh, the, uh, uh, the Mennonites, uh, and, and Mennonites are kind of, a large umbrella that also includes Amish. Uh, so, so a number of groups of Christians who out of conscience say, we cannot be involved in this corrupt institution, this institution of the world, uh, which is called the, the state. So a Christian cannot serve as a congressman, as a senator, as a sheriff, uh, all of these other things. But also, and you see this particularly in World War One, World War Two, uh, where you've got the draft uh, instituted, you had a number of people who were conscientious objectors. And it wasn't simply that they were cowards and didn't want to get shot at. Uh, it was in their conscience they believed that it is wrong for a Christian to wage war, uh, that this is the taking of another life, and the Ten Commandments clearly say, thou shalt not kill, and so it is wrong for a Christian to engage in war. We've got a couple of cool examples of that. Uh, one is from World War I, uh, a guy from eastern Tennessee named Sergeant Alvin York, uh, who went in as a conscientious objector uh, and ended up, I think he got the Medal of Honor, uh, and... and Then uh, there was a movie made recently, uh, I get it confused with Heartbreak Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge, yes, thank you. Uh, Hacksaw Ridge is the story of of a guy from Western Virginia uh, who was a conscientious objector. And uh, he went in and served as a medic and ended up saving a whole slew of people single-handedly and did he get a Medal of Honor out of that as well? Do you know? I don't know. It was a great movie, though. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but, but the point being that there's, there's always been this, this significant movement, uh, within the Christian community that a Christian must be a pacifist, cannot be engaged in, in government, and certainly cannot wage war. Our confession says no, that, uh, you, you are perfectly free to run for Congress. You're perfectly free to run for mayor, for city council, but, you can't set your convictions off to the side. And certainly we see that in folks who will say, you know, yeah, I'm a good Roman Catholic, but I support abortion. Uh, they they kind of set these two things off in into two separate categories. And our confession says, no, your, your Christian convictions uh, are going to influence the way in which you serve as a civil magistrate uh, in order to maintain piety, justice, and peace. Uh, so, so our confession is clearly not pacifist. Uh, and so it's, it's marking out uh, that category. And then section three, um, civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the powers of the keys of the kingdom of heaven or in the least interfere in matters of faith. Yet as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest. Now this is disestablishmentarianism. So you hear what the confession is saying, that the, the civil magistrate is to protect the rights of people to worship regardless of their denomination. So if I'm a Presbyterian president of the United States, I need to also make sure that Baptists and Church of Christ and Anglicans and Roman Catholics are free to worship. Uh, and, and it's interesting what the confession doesn't say there. It doesn't say that I'm also to ensure that Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus are free to worship. I don't think the confession would, would go and, and say we should shut that down, but it's simply speaking to the church. Uh, we're simply focusing on uh, the Christian faith here. Uh, without giving any preference, without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest, in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. Now, I'll pause there. That section right there is what gives cover for ministers, uh, particularly over the past couple of years. Uh, if, if a minister is charged with violating a governor's edict, then the minister can say, I subscribe, I'm confessional, uh, and I subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the Westminster Confession of Faith specifically says that the civil magistrate is not to hinder the full free exercise of the, the worship of Christians and the pastor's uh, responsibility to uh, engage. And so it goes on, and as Jesus Christ has appointed a regular government and discipline in his church, 
no law of any commonwealth should interfere with, let, or hinder the due exercise thereof among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians according to their own profession and belief. It is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the person and good name of all their people in such an effectual manner as that no person be suffered either upon pretense of religion or infidelity to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person whatsoever, and to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance. So you can see the confession speaking very, very strongly <laughs> to the civil magistrate needs to leave the church alone. Uh, the church needs to be able to do what God has called the church to do, to gather and worship, and uh, the civil magistrate is not to be putting the thumb on the scale. And, uh, the, what, oh, yes? Very much so. Yeah. The, the, the question was, didn't our government interfere in our worship uh, during, the, during the last couple of years? And the answer is absolutely they did. Um, and that's why these edicts that were specifically aimed at the church were found to be unconstitutional and were set aside. So, so later... So there was there was actually a pastor that was arrested in the state of Virginia uh, for disregarding uh, the governor's edict that no more than ten people uh, could gather for worship. He said, "Church is open; anybody comes that wants to." And he was arrested and charged. And whether he did that on purpose in order to get arrested, or or whether he just happened to be the guy, I don't know. But when it went through the court system. Uh, the courts basically looked at that statement and and said this governor's or- order is not lawful. And so later, <laughs> when the governor was enacting legislation about, or, or it wasn't even legislation; it was an executive order. When when the governor was enacting an executive order uh, and I don't know. There, there were, you guys read, or I know at least we read all the executive orders. And it's the first time in my life I've ever paid attention to an executive order. I was surprised. It started out with Order 73 or something like that. It's like, wow, there were 72 executive orders ahead of this. I had no idea. <laughs> Didn't really care. But this one certainly hit me. Um, but anyway, when he, when he enacted Executive Order 74, 75, whatever it was, uh, one of the press uh, people asked the governor, uh, "How does this relate to the church? Uh, what are what are the limitations regarding worship?" And he gave this. He clearly was unhappy uh, with the situation that he had been placed in, and he gave this uh, answer about. Uh, I, I'm assuming you guys watched these press conferences as eagerly as I did. <laughs> it was like, this is what we did, uh, or at least what I did, uh, was, was keeping up with all this stuff. Anyway, the governor gave this, this 
speech about, you know, you can worship God anywhere. You don't have to be in a church to worship God. You can be at the lake. You can be on the golf course. You can be outdoors where it's healthy. You can worship God outside. But then he goes on to say, but I don't have anything specific to say to churches. Uh, and that's because he was forced to. Uh, he was told, no, you can't do that. <laughs> and, and so it was found to be unlawful. Uh, and of course that was the, you know, that was the big war in uh, California over John MacArthur. Uh, the, the, the hook that Los Angeles had was that he had lead, or the church, Grace, uh, had leased parking space from the city. And so the city said, well, that's our parking space, uh, therefore, you've got to abide because, you know, we own the, the parking spaces. And so it set up that big battle. And ultimately, Grace was found to have been in the right all along and was awarded a fairly significant financial settlement uh, for all the hassle that the state of California brought against them. So, so it, one of the takeaways from that is that even today, we're still, you know, there, there's still a lot of tension here <laughs> between church and state and, and how these two things uh, interact with each other. So, so this section three has been completely rewritten uh, in the American Confession. Uh, the original confession, uh, 1647, says it's the responsibility of the civil government to establish, protect, and nurture the true religion. And as such, the civil magistrate may call synods and councils and be present at such to ensure that the true religion is protected. Uh, he may also suppress blasphemies and heresies and prevent or reform church discipline. And, and so if you listened to that, you're, you're hearing something that I think all of us would be dramatically uncomfortable with today. Uh, the fact that Governor Northam has the authority to call a synod of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and to have his officers present at that synod and to make sure that we do things properly and that if we exercise church discipline, the state of Virginia has the right to step in and go, nope, you're not going to discipline over that. Uh, that's not a actionable offense. All of those things. That's the original confession. Uh, the American revision separates these two uh, clearly. So, there's, there's that issue of the relationship of the church to the state. It's very, it's very difficult. It's very, uh, we're, we're always going to be struggling with this. There's just not a clear, this is this box and that is that box and never the two will meet. Uh, there, there's always going to be a little, a little friction, uh, in between how do we do this thing and, uh, so that that's the development of our confession. I have a question. I don't really understand the 
I think you hit the absolute crux of the problem. The question is, uh, if you claim to be a pacifist and you believe the Old Testament, how can you say that war is inherently morally evil? Then you're saying God is evil. Uh, and I think you're hitting the nail right on the head. That's the crux of the issue is what is the relationship of the Old Testament to the New? Uh, does the Old Testament grow into the New so that this is one revelation from God? Or is the Old Testament old <laughs> and the New Testament is what we're bound to today? And pacifists universally, all pacifists, uh, any pacifist organization, any pacifist church, universally will say the New Testament is what we're bound to, not the old. And you get into a, I mean, the reason I'm not a pacifist. <laughs> you, you get into a lot of real problems when you start going down that road. When you start going down the road of the Old Testament is done away with, we're only living in the New Testament uh, you, you start getting into some real problems. Absolutely, yeah, that's, uh, that's a great point. Which, which I, so let me reiterate the point, because I keep getting dinged for not repeating the questions <laughs> or points. Uh, there, there's a big difference between God telling people in the Old Testament, go kill the Amalekites, and the President of the United States saying, go kill the Vietnamese. <laughs> uh, there, there's a significant difference. One is absolutely morally clear, uh, and the other, not so much. Uh, and so, so that's where, uh, so our confession refers to, where am I here? Um, to wage war upon just and necessary occasion. Just and necessary. And so that becomes the basis on which we have to decide, is this something that Christians should fight in? Is this a just war? And is this a necessary war? And what the confession is doing here, and, and this has been kicked around for 2,000 years, uh, I think Augustine is probably the best uh, in, in terms of putting forth the idea of just war theory. Uh, and, and basically, the confession is channeling Augustine. Uh, if, if you want to understand Augustine's entire argument regarding how can a Christian go to combat, um, it boils down to those two words. Uh, is this a just cause and is this a necessary cause? So, you know, a just cause might be the Taliban are brutal thugs and they oppress women particularly, uh, but also anybody who has a different belief from them. So, is the Taliban an unjust government? And I would say, yes, they are unjust. So does that mean that I need to get a gun and go take them out? No, it doesn't. Uh, 
<laughs> because it's not only just, but it's also necessary. Uh, is there something about, and, and, you know, this is where we get into all the debates over, was this a just and necessary uh, war? Uh, so, yeah. But, but I, your, your fundamental point is absolutely correct, that there's a huge difference between God telling the Israelites, go kill the Amalekites, and President Bush telling Joey, go kill the Taliban. Uh, one is absolutely morally clear. The other, eh, let's, you know, is this just? Is this necessary? Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> uh, so, so it is, it is trickier when we, when we bring that dynamic. Yeah, it is interesting. Our pacifism, uh, the, again, the comment was, it's interesting in Ukraine that uh, you've got these pacifists who are now deciding to go to war to protect their family. Uh, and, uh, yeah, our, our, uh, as with a lot of things, our noble philosophies often run headlong into reality. <laughs> we have to really make that make that call. Yeah, uh, no, I I would agree. The 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 attacks on the World Trade Center, uh the attack on the Pentagon, the the, the plane that ended up crashing in, in uh, uh, Pennsylvania, th- those, were, those were heinous crimes. It was, it was completely unjust. Uh, and, and that's, you know, again, that's the whole murkiness of living in real life <laughs> is, is how, to, how to navigate through these things. So um, I realize I thought that church and state, how interesting could this possibly be? I thought I would get it done uh, in a week or two, but we clearly uh, have plenty of profitable discussion. So we're going to pick this up next week, Lord. No, 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 not next week. Uh, I'll explain. Week after next, uh, we'll, we'll pick this up and uh, wrap up chapter 23. Next week, um, our regional home missionary, Charles Biggs, uh, is going to be here, and he's going to present in Sunday school uh, the work that he's doing as uh, regional home missionary, what's going on in our presbytery with uh, new churches, new groups of people uh, that, are, that are gathering and hopefully forming new congregations, and then he'll be uh, preaching uh, for us next Sunday. So you'll get a break from both the confession and from me uh, next week, and then we'll pick this up, Lord willing. The, the following. So let me go ahead and uh, close with prayer and let's go to our fellowship. Father, we thank you that uh, even in these difficult wisdom issues, what is just, what is necessary, how does the Christian uh, relate to the church, even in all of this, we have the overarching reality of the call to love one another uh, as you have loved us. 
Uh, and we pray, Lord, that as we discuss and as we debate these real-life implications, that they would be done so with the overarching desire to glorify you and to love our brothers and sisters. Uh, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.